Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today is a special episode for fellows in training and young investigators who are embarking on their career after finishing fellowship. I really wanted to have an episode to tackle some of the challenges that young trainees have as they are applying for their first job, as well as what are the type of challenges that young academic physicians might be facing when they're starting their academic career. So I really think that's really important. I mean, frankly, it is important because when you are in training, you don't really get a lot of teaching and education, how to look for a job, how do you negotiate for a job, how do you actually, uh, what type of questions do you ask when you're interviewing, all of these things. So for that, I have asked Dr. Sonic Preet Olak from West Virginia University to join me on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. She is two years of her fellowship, and she is currently an assistant professor at West Virginia University. And we wanted to catch up and just talk about what was the process that she went through, how did she find a job, how difficult it was, what are the type of problems that she could face when she is a young faculty member. Now, add to this, again, she's an immigrant. She did her medical school in India. Did that play a factor? She is a woman. Did that play a factor? Are there any specific challenges that are more than the usual challenges that someone might have because the person is an immigrant and and so forth? So I really hope you enjoy this episode because I do think there are a lot of valuable information that's going to help many of uh, the folks that are listening to this show. Now, you can watch the actual interview on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to subscribe and click the like button. That will be actually great. As far as the podcast, you know where to find it. Don't forget to subscribe to it. Also rate it, give it the number of stars the podcast deserves and write a brief review. Refer friends or colleagues to the show. I really appreciate that. Without further ado, Dr. Sonic Preet Olak on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, it's really great pleasure of mine to host um, a dear friend and uh, colleague who always, by the way, when I try to pronounce her last name, completely slaughter it, but she always is very generous and very nice, and and she gives me a break. But I'm going to do my best this time. Dr. Aulak, how's that? Close. All luck. All luck. Okay. Well, not bad. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've said it worse, but uh, in all seriousness... Dr. Olek, um, it's really a pleasure to, to have you on this uh, show. We're going to talk, uh, after you introduce yourself, about really challenges that face young academicians as they try to get their career take off. And I think there are certain elements that I would like to talk to you about and understand what are these challenges as someone is going through this young career right now, as well as maybe uh, additional unique challenges pertaining to you being a woman or an immigrant and, and so forth. Now, first of all, tell listeners who you are, where you work, and how did you end up where you are right now? So I'm Sonic Pritolak. I am currently an assistant professor of medicine at uh, West Virginia University. 
I'm a translational neuro-oncologist. I uh, completed my med school in India, followed by um, a few uh, clerkship rotations at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, followed by internal medicine residency uh, at Wayne State University. And uh, finally, uh, my hematology oncology fellowship uh, with neuro-oncology as a, a subspecialty track. Uh, and I also did uh, laboratory research during my three years of fellowship at Mayo Clinic. Uh, and I joined here at WVU as a translational neuro-oncologist as a result of the work which I did at Mayo Clinic. Um, and it's been two years and um, it's been going well so far. So uh, that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. That's great. So what drew, what drew you into neuro-oncology? What was, what, why specifically neuro-oncology? Uh, first, I think uh, if you talk about neuro-oncology and, and specifically talk about some of the most aggressive uh, brain cancers, such as glioblastoma, midline gliomas, uh, where we don't have effective treatment option. Uh, I think that was something which I felt was very challenging. And I think I, I had the right mentorship at the time when I was thinking of which pathway should I take uh, as a subspecialty pathway in hematology, oncology as a fellow. So I think I got the right guidance at the right time. And um, obviously it was a lot of work both in the laboratory and in the clinic, but uh, it was very gratifying at the end, knowing that the opportunities which I have from clinic to the uh, bench side and uh, vice versa, I, 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 Otherwise, would not have that availed to me. That's great. So, can I call you Sonic? You can call me Sonic, Chadi. It's it almost feels weird when you say Doctor Alok. <laughs> well, but we really want to talk a little bit about few few items. But um, I, I want to start by talking about as a young academician. Let's try. Let's agree on the definition first of all, because we all are young, right? We're never going to age, but in academic life, let's agree that a young academician is someone who is less than five years from finishing fellowship, which you, it's been two years for you. Yes, yeah. First, when you were finishing fellowship and you were applying for various job opportunities, how was that experience? I mean, how, how did you know about job openings? How did you... Did you just call, email, send your CV? Did your mentor call? Like how, how does somebody who is finishing fellowship go about finding a job? It's a very critical question and very important one because it, it, it's something which you don't learn during training because we, you're so absorbed in your training in day-to-day routine and day-to-day survival for that matter, that you just got to finish your work, move on to next day, especially I I feel that during fellowship. And it's a challenge which everyone faces. I think people who want to go into academia, they face this as, as a more of a challenge because it's not a smooth path. Um, There are a couple of things. Uh, First, um, do you email, call, or no contacts, I think I have done it all which ways. I, I have gone to uh, several available online resources. 
ASCO, SNOW, NIH, and looked for neuro-oncology job options and have emailed them, called them. And second, whether your mentor help or not, uh, yes, they do, but academia is difficult in a way because if you're going for a laboratory-based pathway, then you have to have a different alignment of your goals uh, within the institution for yourself. Um, and how do you navigate that package for you? Um, your mentor definitely helps. Um, mine definitely helped me. But then um, when you have, say, seven or eight options, uh, which options do you choose? Do you go for a center which is NCI designated versus non-NCI designated, one which is giving you more resources, one which is not giving you more resources. So I, I think uh, there are so many layers to this question, but in the end, I feel like my decision was more based on where I'm getting the right opportunity to be nurtured as a young investigator, where I'm getting the opportunity to expand uh, my clinical um, experience as well as my clinical trial portfolio and everyone's needs are different, but you try always, you, um, you, uh, one has to, because um, every institution's, I think uh, policies of embracing a young clinician investigator is different. Um, and again, uh, at that time, you really don't have many options to navigate through because during research uh, fellowship or during, uh, say, clinical fellowship specifically, we're not being taught to apply for NIH grants, um, at least not in all institutions. And uh, that's something which I, I, I feel like uh, if taught better during your undergraduate, during your graduation, uh, during your why, why, why NIH though? I mean, NIH grants are so difficult, right? Like, I mean, there are so many other opportunities to get grants, could be pharma, could be patient advocacy and so forth. I mean, NIH to me, it seems rather hard. Do you feel that in training, you need to learn how to apply for NIH grants? I personally think yes. Uh, and I had the opportunity to learn the process. I think all the grants which you mentioned are important, um, whether it is industry, whether it is intramural funding, extramural funding, uh, but NIH uh, takes precedence in a way when especially you are moving from a, a dependent investigator to an independent investigator because it allows that uh, transition, it allows that commitment between mentor and mentee, it kind of enhances that, uh, I think, uh, relationship in a way. Um, but others are equally important, I would say. So before we get, I want to still go back into the job, uh, the job issue, because I do find this, this particular item important, especially to listeners who are either in fellowship or training or even young career. So, so you just go to these online resources and you look what's available. And then do you go back to your mentor and say, hey, you know, I found these three jobs do you know anybody there to call? Should I apply? Like what's the, when you find these online resources, first of all, how much do you depend to apply or not to apply on your mentors? And number two, are there opportunities that are not advertised for that your mentor says, hey, let me just call somebody I know 
at so-and-so place and, and maybe they have a position and, and all of that, or is this really not something that happens? Uh, I think, again, a very, very important question. Um, online resources uh, do not cover the job opportunities which are fully available out there. They do not. They, they may um, have one or two options. <laughs> but the best way which I, I found uh, is also a tedious way is to go to individual uh, centers and look for how many neuro-oncologists they have in my case. Uh, are, is there one or two? Then you, know, you, you email the chair and then you go back to your mentor and you ask them, hey, what do you think about this program? Do you think it's uh, not necessarily person? I, I think I, I, I didn't want to be biased about a person who is running the program uh, because you know all these mentors are senior people and uh, what my basic question was uh, as a as a young fellow what do you think about this institution would, would it be nurturing enough for me or not if i go there uh, do you think it, th there would be career opportunities uh, to to grow into my current position and you know apply for grants etc but in in order to answer both of your question i think first online resources will not cover um, everything which uh, one needs to know about available job opportunities, because there are certain community hospitals which also have uh, jobs. Um, they also have uh, research um, resources, but it, it might be missed. And, and second, definitely, I, I did seek out to my mentors and not just my immediate mentors, but outside people whom I knew in the field. By the way, when did you start this process? So it was a three-year program in fellowship, right? Yeah. When did you start uh, doing that? So I started looking into uh, second half of my second year. Really? That's fast because I'm, okay, well, all right. <laughs> well, the reason I think this is so fast because, okay, so it's a three-year program. I mean, in order for you to apply for a neuro-oncology fellowship, which is obviously, you know, I mean, it's a super subspecialty you have to show that you've done something in neuro-oncology. So you're giving yourself only a year and a half of fellowship to have like something in neuro-oncology. It, it seems to me so difficult to have really even a paper in a year and a half sometimes. You are right, it's difficult, but when you start early, it actually helps you understand what else you need to do to enhance your CV. Because then there are options like you take a break for a year after your clinical plus research fellowship. Do you, do you want to do it or not? Should you be staying in the same institution or not? Uh, should you be going somewhere out to do this uh, fellowship or not? Uh, and then you ask your mentor how ready I am. So I think it, it kind of starting early, I think it's not just that you'll find the job right away, but starting early helps you prepare better. You can uh, put your feelers out there and just see. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a daunting process to uh, start finding. All of a sudden, you 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 you. I feel like you you have steep learning curve. So, so now you have let's say a couple of options. You know, uh, two three options that you. Well, first of all, when you go there as uh, to interview. You oftentimes give a talk, I presume, or so like they get you get invited to give a talk and 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 so on. 
if if there's a fellow that's listening to this to this uh, podcast give me the five questions that you absolutely have to ask in an interview process when you are interviewing for a job as a young faculty career yeah I, I, again that's very important and i figured out what those five questions were or actually the, the list is longer but you know they're, you top know, they're five. yeah the, the top five um first um i think depends on whom you are asking depends upon what kind of uh, institution uh, you're applying to what kind of job opportunity you, you're applying to for example in my case i i wanted to know um would it be possible uh, for me to practice um, my laboratory translational research and uh, run a brain tumor clinic. Uh, second question was, um, is there a mentorship model there? Uh, is there a mentoring committee there? It doesn't have to be from my same field, but people who are more experienced who can help me read my grants, uh, review it, help me review my papers. I think this was very important to me. Um, then um, obviously you do talk about salary because it's important that whether it is just the, based on RVUs, do you have a fixed base salary? And what about, what if I have grants, where does that go? And in my case, I also uh, ask questions around clinical trials. Uh, do you have phase one unit? Uh, do you have a capability to expand phase one to phase two? Um, and uh, fifth, I, I think uh, just the networking environment within the institution where uh, you actually have the opportunity to not just uh, collaborate with people who are immediately in your field, but also say biochemistry, physiology, immunology, microbiology, who can help facilitate some of your questions. So I think for me, these were top five questions. And, uh, you know, and the, and if you want to go to the sixth, that what's the environment of, do, do you have a MD PhD program? Do you have a PhD program? Do you have trainees? Um, and how do we best help them reach to their goals? Um, if somebody like me is coming, it may be new to the institutions. And, uh, and, and these are very, very important questions. You know, a person who's going to a community hospital may have a different um, set of questions. Yeah. Did geographic location play a role or do you recommend for young trainees as they're embarking on their career? You know, I mean, barring obviously family restrictions, right? I mean, let's say you absolutely have to stay in a particular city. Do you add a factor for geographic location in your selection process? You know, I personally did not. I, I wanted to um, interview as many places as were possible. But I know in re reality, um, there are, you know, family ties and restrictions. Um, and in that case, I think um, if, if I, I, because I, I in, uh, encountered that scenario in my head that what if I had to choose a place based on the location? And then I thought then maybe I'll have to think about perhaps downsizing my requirements if if the if the place which i'm i want to reside at doesn't have the same uh, 
institutional capacity. So I, I think there is this fine balance uh, between dreams versus reality. Well, you know, I mean, if you have to choose uh, based on pizza and food, Chicago would have been your That's choice. But um, so then, Sonic, you, you ended up at WVU. Um, uh, obviously, there was something that attracted you to a university, but we're talking more, uh, more broadly on that. But uh, how much do you feel trainees coming out of fellowship really have negotiating power when they are coming into an institution. And what I mean by that, you know, I mean, because you know what I feel, I feel like there's sometimes asymmetry, like the institution is big and large and so forth. And you're like this young fellow trying to get a job. In your experience, did you feel you're able to go head to head and say, well, maybe I want a little bit more money. Maybe I need more protected time. Maybe I need more lab protection. How, did, how was your negotiating process? How did that go? And, uh, or did you even feel, okay, there's nothing I can negotiate. Either I sign or I go elsewhere. Very important question. I think uh, um, it's, as I was saying earlier, it's a it's a daunting process for a young trainee to look for jobs and demand. That demand in a way, not because we are just demanding irrationally, but demanding in a way that we deserve it. Um, it, it was almost, I had to instantly learn uh, and my mentors really helped me. Um, so they helped you in looking at the contract or something or? Um, the key points, um, when I asked them, what would you ask, ask um, when I will be asked this question? You know, it was that kind of a exercise. Um, but obviously there are certain key elements which are just specific to an individual, in my case, to me, that um, you're not really comfortable um, asking. But I think what really helps is in, 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 in my case, what really helped here was uh, the, the hiring committee. I think they were very transparent and they had already told me, this is doable, this is not doable. These are your options. These are negotiable, these are non-negotiable. And then I went back and I, I read it, I read more about it. And uh, I think there comes a time where, you certainly have to maybe to put it mildly compromise somewhere. Uh, but if you ask me now, if I, how, how would I have done it differently two years ago? I don't think I would have done it differently. I think I would have, have uh, to have it reviewed by a lawyer, like legal. Help. Yeah, I, I actually, actually uh, had a lawyer to review it. Uh, uh, although it was, uh, you know, uh, straightforward, kind of a contract, but because of um, other elements, tail insurance and, you know, all that, I, I wanted to make sure I'm um, signing um, the right contracts. But I, I think... Um, Most universities cover tail insurance, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I And I think this one also does. But advice, getting advice from the people who have done it, uh, I think is very crucial. And whether they're your mentors or they're your, um, you know, colleagues whom you trust or whether there's a family member whom you trust, somebody has to just read in between lines. I read it multiple times. So I want to add an element 
to your situation, which is uh, you're an immigrant from India. Uh, you've been in the States for how long, Sonic, now? Um, I first came in 2011, so almost 10 years. About, about 10 years. I want to add this element a little bit to the story. We haven't gotten to the job yet. We're just pre-job right now. Did you feel at all that being an immigrant or somebody who has gone to a medical school outside of the States had any, let's say, set you back in as you were applying or anything or, or the fact that now you finished residency and fellowship, you're like later on in the career where you went to medical school became less important um, to, or maybe you, you didn't feel how, uh, add the color of being an immigrant and do you feel it had any impact? It has its elements where um, you kind of go back in time and ask yourself, could you have done the same thing, say, five years ago or 10 years ago, which you're doing now? Was it? Um, and, and I feel like there are a few things which uh, remarkably um, stand um you know, as coming from a, from a different world where we didn't have many research opportunities. We didn't had any idea about MD, PhD, dual pathway. We didn't had idea about, um, you know, how to conduct research. Um, um, and I would say for that matter, mentor-mentee relationship. I think that there, and when you learn this during the course of your residency, during the course of your training, including fellowship, um, it doesn't come naturally. It's almost like you have to learn it. You have to absorb it. I don't think necessarily it impacted um, where I am today and where I would be in 10 years from now. It certainly didn't impact that because there's a time for everything. You know, you can Mm-hmm. start start learning from uh, but I, I think it knowing it earlier knowing that these things uh, help you uh, get a job maybe maybe least, it has, yeah, I think maybe it has an impact when you apply for residency more than for faculty because now you've done residency and fellowship here I don't know um it definitely you know the element stays there you know that yeah. you have visa issue you have um you know you, you you are limited in in your grant options you're not able to get all grants you are um there are but i i think in the bigger scheme of things i don't think it matters. I think if you are talented enough and have um, enough potential and you portray that on your CV and your conversation and and you are a reliable person, you are an intelligent and hardworking person, I think it doesn't matter. But that's more like a um, philosophical slash scientific note. But um, it, it, on papers, it, it may carry some significance. So then you um, started your career um, as, a, as a faculty member. And um, just for listeners, I know you're a translational scientist. So what does that mean? Like how much lab time do you have? How much clinic time? How much inpatient service? How much can you just divide a pie chart? Think of a pie chart and how do you spend your, your time? 
So when we when we talk about a physician scientist or a translational scientist, we talk about having clinical duties and we talk about having research duties. So in clinical duties, you know, it's close to 50-50, but uh, there is an overlap. It's uh, never 50-50 because, uh, but it allows you to at least focus or, you know, you keep adjusting your time accordingly. between clinic and lab, I think um, ideally people go 60% of research, 40% of clinic or 70% of research, 30% of clinic or 75% uh, of research and 25% of clinic. You're 50? Yeah, 50. And as a a young investigator having 50% of the lab, does the institution give you some seed money to buy equipment, to hire postdocs, to, I don't know, like, do they give you some money at least to get started? Yeah, it, it uh, you get a starting package and um, we call it startup lab package. Um, and then it, it's enough to get uh, equipment and then you have uh, common shared equipment and then, you you can hire people, lab tech, postdoctoral fellow. Um, oh, that's great. Okay, yeah. that's good. And that's that uh, startup package. You know, keeps you alive for three years. Not too long. <laughs> Not too long. Well, how long? It, it, see, it, it depends. It's a if it's a tenure track position, um, then you want to get a grant. You know, ideally by uh, on papers by third or fourth fourth year um and at least by fourth year but you know in, in my case because of covid pandemic in everybody else's case covid pandemic was um actually had uh, you know, a, a huge impact on not just on young investigators careers but uh, others investigators careers but i think four to five years they say you should have an independent extramural funding so they'll be patient with you up, up to five years and then somebody's going to talk to you um yeah but during those five years sonic um the expectations are what exactly as a young investigator are the expect like i'm trying just to understand are the expectations you need to have an r01 you need to have just some money to cover your salary you need to uh, what do you need to accomplish by year five so um extramural funding Definitely. Does it, does it matter from where? It matters in a way that, um, say, if you were talking about NIH funding, if if you have NIH funding, it's it's considered to be um, um, rigorously peer reviewed and you know uh, prestige. But um, as long as your lab is alive with the extramural funding, because there are certain other um, uh, funding agencies such as ASCO and you know Sontag uh, and um, there are a couple more um, AVTA in 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 my case you know you keep looking for those and just keep applying. So do you do you? But I'm just putting myself as a funding agency. Mm-hmm. You show me something to decide to fund you, right? Mm-hmm. So do you feel? I mean, do you do you try to work for a couple of years to establish the basis of what you're applying for? Do you apply day one and just start hitting the ground? Say this is what I'm planning on doing. Like you know, somebody is listening. What uh, like what do they need to do in year one and year two? I think it's impossible to apply on day one. 
because if you're every first of all if you're a funding agency all funding agencies has different set of criteria some prefer clinical trial some are okay if you don't have clinical trials some prefer uh, some prelim data some prefer it's okay if you have just a, an idea or a hypothesis some prefer a combination uh, i i think you regardless you need time to hypothesize to sit down to plan your experiment to analyze the data to get it critically reviewed by your own peers first you by your own colleagues first before you can actually apply for um, a, a funding but you can still learn the process by simultaneously performing your experiments and uh, writing but until unless it's uh, vetted by a few people whom you trust I, I don't think day one application is even feasible how challenging it is to get funding. It is challenging. There's no denying about it. Uh, it's a it's, uh, lot of efforts, competition, uh, how novel your idea is. As a, young, as a young investigator, if you're applying to a funding agency and there's a senior investigator that's applying for the same funding agency, different ideas. I'm not saying it's the same idea. I mean, am I being too naive to think that the funding agency may be more drawn to the senior person because it has more established record, they know him or her, and they say, okay, you know what? We may as well just go with this person because he has a track record. Um, so Nick is younger, we, she may be great, but we just don't know that. Like how? I don't know. Is this too naive of me to think? Answer to that is, you know, now because we are diversifying how the funding should go, whom should it go to? I think there certainly uh, is an equity, I think, in early career investigators um, funding process because uh, there are special sort of requirements in how how long ago you graduated from your program and within five years to seven years. So I don't think we are directly uh, competing um, with the senior investigators, but I think we're directly competing with the quality and the experience and the, um, and the questions which we are asking. Um, are, they, are they of that caliber where it should be funded, funded or not? It's, um, I, I don't think I, I see that it, one would be preferred over the other. Okay. So um, I want to add an additional layer here uh, with you being a female and, and a successful, accomplished woman. But do you feel that there's any, um, uh, I mean, more specific challenges as you're trying to kick off your academic career as a translational scientist that may be specific to you because you are a woman versus what men might encounter as they're trying to pick off their academic work? Um, I think there's data uh, which uh, suggests over the last 10 years uh, that there were challenges which were um, more faced by women um, either due to underrepresentation or just uh, you know lack of resources provided. But uh, you know I think it's changing now and it's changing very rapidly because 
most of the funding agencies um, are providing special packages to to um, young investigators and then there is a uh, you know women in uh, medicine there is um, immigrant women women of color so I think that uh, notion is kind of diluting uh, slowly but surely so there is I mean that that you feel it has improved over the past 10 years uh, yeah absolutely based on uh, data based on what we see now I, I feel that uh, it's improving slowly, uh, for sure. So I asked you earlier, Sonic, about the top five questions you would ask or you would advise somebody to ask. Um, I'm going to still go into the theme of top five. What are the top five challenges that maybe you're facing as an early investigator career, less than five years out from fellowship, that you think others might be facing as well and they need to really figure out how to navigate? Um, there may not be five, but I would say I'll give you up to five. Um, I think time management, uh, it's big. Tell us about that. Huh? Yeah, especially. Tell us about the time management, what you mean by that. So, um, you know, between clinical duties and between uh, uh, running a lab and generating the data and uh, setting time aside to write grants and then really thinking through your um, uh, hypothesis and running it by someone who's more experienced and if if um, and then kind of uh, listening to your own uh, scientific rationale. I think there's there it's a process and um, and it it. it it demands thinking, a lot of thinking. So I think time management, I would say, especially if you are a translational uh, scientist, it's, it, it could be one of the challenges. And that's why, you know, in, during your um, contract negotiation or during your um, a research funding process, we always ask for 70, 30, 60, 40, 50, 50 percent of uh, division of time. Um, second, I think uh, competition. There is huge uh, competition in um, getting research funding. Everybody is trying to get the best quality of research out there. And, um, and, and then it becomes a process where you just need to be out there and continuously apply for um, research grants. Third, I would say, which we were just talking about, uh, you know, diversification. I think it's already happening where um, people who may not have the same opportunities, for example, in my case, I didn't do any uh, research fellowship during my undergraduate uh, program or during even during, um, you know, initial years of my graduation. And I did it in later half. So I think that's also, that also could become a challenge. I, I don't think necessarily it is a challenge, but it definitely can become a challenge. And then I think uh, finding the right mentors, both institutionally and out of institution, it's a, it's a commitment, both from a mentor and a mentee, um, I think, standpoint of view, that um, how their relationship is helping the grants to materialize, papers to materialize, and, and the ideas, uh, because it all starts from an idea. I think fifth is to um, say if you have postdoctoral fellow, you have lab technician, or you have graduate students, and you have undergraduate students, um, how do you keep up with all of that? Um, in addition to your own, um, and, and uh, because you're also teaching at the time. 
So you're not only giving them the ideas about the research, you're teaching them, uh, you're sitting there on the bench and teaching them. I think, and, and there, there could be many more challenges depending upon every person's specific uh, situation. But I, I think in, in my mind, these are the top five, um, I would say. And you are serving as a mentor to these folks. Mm-hmm. As well. How easy it is to find mentors outside of your institution? I mean, you know, folks that can, you know, advance your career that you don't work with. Is that tough? I think you initially start with knowing each other, um, trying to have some collaborative effort um, because it's a commitment. It's a time commitment from a mentor who's senior to you and who's more busy than you are. Um, And once you develop that level of trust and that level of, I think, um, collaboration, then it becomes an easy process. I think both, it doesn't matter if it's an institution or outside institution. I think for for me, it's the same, both in, in the institution and outside institution. So Nick, how how are you assessing your success early on in your career? Um, is it purely if you get money or not? I mean, is that and and the second question I'm gonna after that is I'm sure you have other co- I probably should have had another colleague who is not translational because you have you have a unique perspective which is lab and so on. I wonder for those on a clinical track how you know how they negotiate that actually gives me an idea for another podcast but how are you assessing your success i mean is it like again is it show me the dollar sign dollar sign i i think in in the research world kind of affirms that your 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 research is fundable it uh you, I don't think you i you work for the dollar i think you work for yeah, the but that's what i meant i meant like yeah, yeah, it kind of allows you to, I think, just run your ideas, run your innovative ideas and actually materialize it. So I think in that aspect, funding becomes huge and I think it's important. Um, but do I see that as a sign of success? Um, I think if there are good, there's good science out there, people are reading it. I think that to me is more gratifying um, than just the dollar sign. So we're going to talk about worst and best case scenarios. And I know you've been very generous. I promise you just a couple of more minutes. This has been really amazing. And I hope uh, listeners realize how uh, great this is. But worst case scenario, you get no extramural fundings within a five-year allocated time, which I know it's unlikely. I know how hard worker you are, but still, it's certainly not a zero possibility. And we always prepare for, for the worst and plan for, the, uh, plan for it. What would you do then? What do you think, you know, w- what would be the options? And number two, you get extramural funding and you're well and, and you're doing fine. Uh, within those five years, uh, where, what would you would do after that in five years? So take us through both scenarios, because I know colleagues of mine who did not get the funding that they expected, and they had to actually make changes. Frankly, some of them left institutions, others went to clinical, all of that stuff. I mean, we, we know that these things happen. But in your own words, take us through best case scenario, what that looks like, 
and worst case scenario, what that looks like? I think uh, best case scenario is we'll continue what we are doing. We'll continue what I'm doing um, in terms of finding best treatment for um, highly aggressive brain cancers. In worst case scenario, uh, it's not that I didn't think about it um, before stepping in because it's very unconventional. Um, there are very um, a few physician scientists out there. Um, I, I just thought that worst case scenario would be I learned a lot and, um, and then just perhaps uh, if it will, it, it's difficult to answer that question, first of all, because, you know, in my own head, I, I thought about it and I could never answer that. That's why you're on healthcare unfiltered. <laughs> That's why, true. Um, I, I, I think I, I will some shape or form, I will still pursue this, maybe at not at the same scale and then find my way to get back to where I needed to be. Um, if, uh, if absolutely I, I can't practice what I'm doing, then I, I guess I'll have to rethink of, of, the, of the ways which I, which I was um, uh, working in the past and then perhaps just modify it. I, I, I don't know the right answer. What the, what well, let's hope we scenario. don't. <laughs> Hope we don't really get to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's a good that. question. It's a but very good question. Yeah, I mean, I say that because I think it's like you know, you submit a paper. Worst case scenario, it doesn't it's get rejected. You you go elsewhere or etc. Anything I forgot to ask you that you think is relevant? I mean, my goal of this episode was to highlight potential challenges that young investigators, young career physicians might face, even from the time they're trying to apply for a job as they maybe negotiate, and then even after they start the role, like I said, you're a translational scientist, so some of the things that you said pertaining to lab and startup package may not really apply to yeah. folks coming on clinical grants, uh, clinical uh, track. Are you able to comment on the clinical uh, track, folks? I mean, do you know people and friends? Can you maybe give us a little bit of uh, some light into that other track? I, I think clinical track is equally important because even if I take my um, case, I, I have clinical track. I have both the tracks, but clinical track becomes more important in whether you want to practice, uh, say, hematology, oncology, um, both these subjects, or you want to subspecialize in one aspect of hematology, oncology, and then where, where do you do it? Do you want to pursue an ac academics or you want to do uh, a private practice? And again, you know, um, student debt is real. I mean, we have all gone through that. That also becomes um, a, an issue. Um, and and I, one of the best advice, I think, which I got from my mentors was, uh, Sonic, interview as many places as you can mm -hmm. uh, because it allows you to not only just meet you know, several uh, physicians and several um, other folks whom you will learn from, but will, it'll allow you to introspect into other institutions that, yeah. and, and what, and, and I think that was such a great advice. I think both uh, clinical track as well as for non-clinical slash uh, lab, lab-based um, track that 
it, it gave you a perspective some 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 of the places i interviewed i was amazed like how wow this is a very well established system you know they have these many resources so i i think my uh, my um and i and and i think we should all be bold as young uh, investigators in knowing our um, strengths um, more than our weaknesses and then really asking the right questions to the right folks at the right institution and just um, and go to places go to more places also Nick this has been uh, great really I, I've enjoyed it immensely just getting to know you a little bit more uh, the your ambition what you're trying to accomplish and you know, I think there are certain elements in the story in terms of the challenges and the opportunities. And I would like to have you in about a year or so if healthcare unfiltered is still on the air and nobody really decides to never have me on the air. So we uh, continue follow up on the progress. Anything else you want to tell listeners as we depart part ways? No, thank you. It was, it's been wonderful, Chadi, as always. Thank, thank you. you so much. Okay, well, uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and I hope you enjoyed learning about the journey that you that a young investigator might face as they go through finding a job and starting their career. Let me know how you think about this episode and you can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or you can email me at chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can also visit my website, chadinabhan.com Check out all the features and message me through there. Don't forget to watch the interview on YouTube. Subscribe, rate, review, and refer a friend or a colleague. Look, the reality is being a young investigator, trying to navigate all of the issues requires a lot of tenacity and resilience, requires the ability to go through a lot of processes to be able to become successful. And this reminds me of one of the best speeches that I would like to leave you with. It was by Theodore Roosevelt. And I really think it's fitting for this episode, anytime that you think about how difficult things are, but you deserve credit for trying. So I'm gonna part ways with you after I tell you this code that is absolutely one of my absolute favorites by Theodore Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcomings but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Until next time, take care.